Welcome back, fellow brain tools. If you're enjoying the content, loving the show, the potty, uh, subscribe to whichever podcast platform you're on now or follow and join in the journey on LinkedIn and Instagram brain tools podcast right there. Oh yeah, click that button. Welcome back to Brain Tools. This is episode two of our Brains at Work series, uh, episode 25 or up. What are we talking about today? Well, my friend, we're going to be talking about resilience at work. We're going to talk about building resilience and something called stress inoculation and responding to stressful events. But most importantly, how do you bounce back through four resilience-based brain tools? And that is what we're going to do today because more resilience, less stress, better life, better work. Shall we get to it? Let's get into it. We're here, episode 25 on resilience as a part of our Brains at Work series, which is the number two episode in this series. Welcome, Sam. How are you? I'm doing well, doing well. Very excited to talk about resilience, uh, all things resilience in the brain today. I think it's a very contextual and timing, timely topic after some conversations I've had this week, actually. How are you doing, my friend? I'm actually delightful, to be honest. With you. I'm having a bad hair day, though. I'm not going to lie. I look like a peacock. But for those that are listening, it. it's okay. You don't have to worry too much about it. I well, think for all those about- that are listening, you look beautiful. <laughs> oh, mate. This is where you play James Blunt and we have a good crack at it. Hey, you're beautiful. <laughs> but I, um, I'm actually really excited for this episode because episode one obviously focused largely on productivity. But, mate, there's the flip side of maximal productivity, as we spoke about, which is burnout. Mm. And there was a stat that stood out to me and sort of scared me a little bit. And it said that a quarter of employees view their jobs as the number one stressor in their lives. And that was from the Center of Disease Control and Prevention. And I sort of sat there wow. and said, that is alarming. I don't know how you feel about it, but I, I was like, alarm bells off. Oh, it's terrifying to think about, you know, 25% of the world's population or the people in our life. The biggest thing, biggest stress in their life is work. Absolutely. And it's probably been like, I think it's pretty safe to say it's been exacerbated by COVID-19 and a bunch of employee Mm. turnover. I mean, seeing your friends leave your company, increased workload because you've had cuts there, increased demand and pressure to perform, cuts, failing at work, all these different things. Have you seen this in your friends, mate? I Well, I've seen heaps of that. And also with the last year, things like people uh, being made redundant or stood down entering a hyper-competitive job market, they're job hunting, or I've got you know friends who are getting slammed at work because they have less staff on. Uh, maybe it's the busiest period, it's reporting season, or it can even just be like I was having a conversation with a friend the other day, like, just dealing with someone who's a complete asshole, whether that's like a manager, a boss, a customer, like a client. Um, and even myself, like I, I had a period where uh, a really stressful period maybe a couple of weeks ago where a couple of things changed, lost a couple of clients in my freelance work. And so that definitely put me under this period of increased stress. And, and yeah. Yeah, it's, it's such a tough one, mate. And as you said, like we all sort of experience this. And I think when we look at neuroscience, I suppose, from a resilience perspective, that's such an important trait to have amidst the chaos mm. that work can actually bring. And there's actually a, like a lot of economic implications here. Um, there was a Deloitte study called The Disconnect Disconnect. And it basically said $1 trillion globally, mate. $1 trillion is lost in productivity per year. Errors, sick leave, lower productivity, higher absenteeism, all that compounds to say this it can be a massive problem. And if you don't have resilience, you don't have the ability to grind through, it can mean absolute massive losses. 
Whew, don't we just love a good corporate buzzwordy title? The disconnect, disconnect. <laughs> but as, as you said, serious ramifications. So that's why today we will be talking about building resilience and building this armor of resilience uh, mentally in your brain that protects you from the arrows of, of the workplace and, and the world. And you'll learn some ways how to do that in this podcast and how that works to um, give you some tools as always. I love it. And I think Winston Churchill, look, sums it up pretty well. He says, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. And so as we look at resilience today, I think it's all about looking at how do people actually bounce back? How do we actually overcome failure? And Sam, I think it probably first starts off with, as we always do, we've got to define resilience. It gets chucked out a lot, right? There's all this resilience. You need to have it, but do people really know what it is? So I have to give you the definition. You've got to give me the definition because I think everyone has their own version and uh, at least this one's based in some science. I know. Love love a definition, don't we? So resilience here, it's basically saying avoiding negative social, psychological and biological consequences in the face of stress. In other words, essentially, is you're, it's not that you're impervious to stress, but you know how to deal well with it. So there's not really any negative ramifications. And I think that opens up the idea of stress. Does that definition suit you or your understanding? No, it totally suits me. And I'm actually thinking about a study I read in the lead up to this, where they showed that the they used mice, but the mice that were resilient still experienced stress symptoms, but actually activated a whole bunch of different neuronal pathways and circuits that allowed them to adapt to it. Mate, that is so interesting. Like, cause I, I was thinking about this as well from a, a stress perspective, right? Cause obviously stress and resilience come hand in hand in a way. And you can almost have a bit of a stress equation. And again, we had uh, yeah, the procrastination equation last week, got the stress equation this way, but it's basically stress can be a function of time, intensity, and the type of stress that obviously compounds mm. to it. And I think the thing that we probably underestimate about stress, particularly in the workplace is, yeah, you can have stressful moments. But normally it's stressful periods. It's one month, two month, three month of constant stress. And so if you think about it like that, in reality, the stress lasts as long as your memory lasts. That's why it's such a big tie with stress in your hippocampus and like why it plays a massive role in major depressive disorder and PTSD as well. And so I sort of sat there and be like, okay, stats wise, what does this say? Because everyone goes through trauma, right? And it's, there was this stat. I think we both saw this one when we were researching this. And it said in the general population, about 50 to 60% of people will experience trauma or severe trauma. Yet the prevalence of MDD, which is major depressive disorder and PTSD, is only 7.8%. So there's a disconnect. There must be something that's contributing to people being able to get through that trauma. Obviously being mindful that some people might not come forward with these stats. But I find that interesting. Yeah, I mean, super, super interesting um, statistics. And it also kind of resonates with our own personal lived experiences. Like you, like you said, everyone goes through stressful periods at work and it's usually not a stressful thing. It's a stressful week or month or reporting season or year or six months without a job or whatever it is. Um, the question that it begs is where does resilience come from? Like why are these people resilient? It's a very, very good question, mate. Teach me. Teach you. Well, luckily, thanks to a meta-analysis from the King's College of London in 2016, they looked at you know, thousands uh, of data points in the neurobiology of resilience in Behavioral Medicine Journal. We know that. Um, and we do know there are um, certain factors that contribute to your resiliency. Um, and a lot of those uh, are actually external to you, outside your control. So things like your genetics, epigenetics, 
developmental experiences. And we know this because there was a, a recent study. We love a good research piece from King's College London in 2016. Mm-hmm. They did a meta-analysis. Can you please do this in English I was in, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I wish I could. I don't think I have an English accent. I'm Australian. But they ran our meta-analysis looking at the neurobiology of resilience. And it was published in the Behavioral Medicine Journal. And they, they found these mechanisms or these underlying correlates uh, of resilience and stress sensitivity. So I was just going to outline a quick a quick list of a couple of those so people can really understand what contributes to your resilience levels. Yeah, talk me through it. So what are what are the different factors in this? As we so the first one, we're looking at genetics. So how, how you were born, what you were born with. And this is from the uh, perspective of the neuromechanisms, your neuroprocesses. So things like your neuropeptide Y, your HBA axis, which controls your stress response in pituitary glands, your adrenaline, your dopamine systems, your serotonin system. So all these things that were wired into you um, when you were born, they contribute to your stress sensitivity is what it's called and then contributes to your resilience. The next one's epigenetic or adaptive factors. And these are the the things, the brain changes you experience over time due to how you respond to traumatic events. So for example, if you had some ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, and you you learn some stress response into those, that could impact um, the genetic expression of, of certain parts of those um, brain elements I mentioned before, and therefore impact your strength, stress sensitivity. And the last one is developmental. And that, this comes across as this concept I really love, and I think a lot of people are mm-hmm. going to resonate with, of learned helplessness, which yeah, is- I love it. Uh, we love learned helplessness, but it's this idea that you learn a stress response or how to respond to stressful situations or how to respond when you feel under stress. Um, and as a result, you develop a hyperactive HPA or amygdala, which is a lot of what contributes to your resilience and you become really sensitive to stress. Yeah. I love that summary, mate, in terms of like the genetic, epigenetic and developmental, because I think when we've spoken about stress before on the podcast, we did a whole series on emotions. So go feel free to check out that as well. I think what's Mm. interesting is like, it's when we talk about in the context of resilience, right. And how you can overcome stress. It's not that you just have this resilience gene in there, but there's a a number of factors that influence how resilient you might actually be. And I think those three parts are, are really interesting. And there's, a behavioral study that was actually done again using mice. So again, I'm always <laughs> mindful. I've always put an asterisk, right? It's like I, m- mice being a, an analog to humans. Again, always mindful of that one, but it was yeah. really interesting. Have you heard of a guy called Eric Nestler, mate? I actually have come across a bit of his research. He's big in the uh, neuroscience of resilience space. Yeah, he's, a, he's the big dog, so to speak. And in 2012, he basically came up with this whole idea of the social defeat model with mice to study stress. And basically, if you can imagine, right, you've got, <laughs> I've, got I've got to scale this down a little bit. You imagine you've got two mice there, right? You've got a mouse A, which is the passive mouse. And then there's another one, mouse B, which is the dominant aggressive mouse. And basically, they spent time together a few minutes a day. But then what happened, and I thought this was a little bit cruel, but hey, it worked out. Then they basically housed the mouse behind a screen in that same cage. So all the sensory cues of this sort of stress, so to speak, was there without mm. the physical contact. And that was a long period of stress. And what they basically found in these passive mice, so to speak, is that a third of them had this natural resilience, but there was two thirds of them that had behaviors that were comparable with depression, right? And it became such an interesting fact to say that there was this bad side of plasticity, that these mice that didn't have this resiliency, they had this stress-induced adaptations, but they did got none of the good side. And so the conclusion that was raised from this is that this was a failure of resilience in the face of adversity. It's actually a failure of plasticity. So it's the adverse plasticity. So there's good plasticity, there's bad, but the bad actually outweighed the good when it came to the mice that were experiencing those depressive episodes. 
I was mind blown. Mind blown. Uh, mice blown as well, if you were. I don't. I love that they always use <laughs> I'm mice I'm deducting points for that. You don't, nah, you don't yeah, get that. That's I'm not terrible. paying that. You dad joke. I, I sincerely apologize to everyone I've ever met and known for that <laughs> shocking joke. It ties really well into that concept of learned helplessness and maladaptive neuroplasticity because really what it's about is learning this unhelpful stress response to a situation. But there is a flip side of this when it comes to resilience because even though you don't choose your your resilience baselines that were formed as you grew up and as a result of your genetic factors, you can still change the way you respond to stress. And we know this because of neuroplasticity and the plastic adaptations that happen, but you can train yourself to better respond um, and regulate your stress and therefore create more of a resilience brain. And there's actually quite a few studies that support this. I'm going to link them in the the show notes. But uh, as a reference, neuroscientist Kevin Oshner at Columbia showed that teaching people to change the way they thought about stressful events, uh, not only by reframing and not only change their brain, but also change how they experience it and reacted to them. So therefore they were learning to build a resilience brain. And the term for this, for everyone out there who likes a good term, is stress inoculation. All right, Samuel. I love the word. What does that mean? (laughs) It's a great word, isn't it? Stress inoculation. Think of it a little bit like when you go and get a vaccine to inoculate yourself from your virus. Hey, if you're out there, you got the COVID vaccine? (laughs) <laughs> same same concept but mentally so if you're an anti-vaxxer maybe this one's not for you but even then we're not asking you to take a jab it's stress inoculation is you teaching your brain to adapt to stressful situations and respond to the stress in a way that then becomes uh healthy and allows you to deal with it and cope with it much better because as you said we will always experience stress you can't turn off the stress response that's physically not possible because you just can't remove it. But what you can do is learn how to respond in a way that allows you to move forward. And that's, that's kind of resilience in a nutshell. So there's some really great studies out there. Um, one in the Clinical Psychology Review, the annual review from Southwick and Cherney, which looked at the fact that when people went through and practiced inoculating themselves from stress with some of the tools we're going to mention today. So stick around for those. Mm-hmm. Um, and by exposure to stressful events, they actually changed the the structure in their prefrontal cortex uh, and the function and stress and the response circuitry. So really, really amazing. You can change your brain and rewire it to be inoculated against stress. That's it's actually such a, a good point, mate, because I think a lot of people, including myself, we always think about the idea that we want to get rid of stress, like it's the absence yeah. of stress. But it's actually not that. It's learning how to deal with it effectively because you, if you don't have enough stress, as you said, then what's the whole point in doing what you do? I'm reminded of that sort of optimal stress curve that people always love to push out, right, which is like too much stress, you fall into this sort of zone of breakdown, you're overwhelmed, you can't work very well, but not enough, and you're sitting at work being like, I don't actually care. I'm completely apathetic. Um, Mm. And I think that's a really interesting point because there was a study actually done in this book by a guy called Richard Davidson, The Emotional Life of Your Brain. Interesting title. Um, But what they basically found in this, uh, to your point on the the link between the prefrontal cortex and Amy or the amygdala, is that signals from the left PFC particularly uh, to the amygdala and vice versa generally are correlated and determine how quickly the brain will recover from an upsetting experience. And the interesting Mm. part here is longer lasting Amy or amygdala activation um, after an experience actually evoking negative emotion. That is what we call hypercortisolema. 
And that's where we've spoken about a lot with depression and so on is heightened levels of cortisol. And like the analogy I've got, and we always talk about Amy being like your sort of, you know, a security system. You know, we always talk about trying to sleep when the alarm is ringing all night long. If your Amy's just continually going, you can't sleep. Flip that though analogy a little bit and say, hey, imagine trying to work with an alarm ringing all day, <laughs> right? That is literally what this is like. It's like, you can't, you'll get so annoyed, you'll get frustrated, yeah. you'll literally be not efficient or productive at all. And so I found that a particularly interesting one that links quite nicely to that um, study that we're talking about at Charney. Oh yeah. Have you, have you ever been in a building when they've run a fire alarm test and try to keep working through it? Mate, I have. It literally doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. It's panic it as well. Work. There's a bit of panic. Yeah. There's a bit of panic and stress, but that ties really well into what you're talking about with um, Amy the amygdala um, and that constant ringing alarm. So now that we kind of know that you can adapt and you've got that bit of a, a mental frame for stress and resilience, like we still have this problem that, if I can be blunt, shit goes wrong at work. And the less resilient you are, the the less able you are to respond to it and can break you down, lead to breakdowns, burnout, et cetera, and impact your mental health. Even your relationships can really suffer. Um, I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but I've had stressful periods where it's just absolutely come out in the wash with my partner at home. I totally agree with that though, mate, which is like we always, I don't know about you, we try and separate the personal and the professional. And the reality is it's mm. so hard with those with those different things as well. So I'm, I feel you on that one. It's a big one. And so that's why I want to give you this frame for resilience, which makes it really, really simple and kind of summarizes what we know from a lot of the psychology research and tying in with the neuroscience research. Um, think about resilience as control, as taking back control. Mm. And the reason I say that is because the defining trait of people who are resilient in the brain is their ability to express control over their circumstances, situation uh, through their perspective. They, they focus on what they can do. And why is this really important? Well, because we know control is directly or inversely proportional to your stress response. When we feel out of control, we feel stressed. And this is really an easy uh, analog to draw here. Ever been in the backseat of a car when someone's driving radically in the front seat? You feel like you're freaking out. Backseat drivers. Oh, I'm sorry, mate. This is yeah. the other day when I was in the car with my girlfriend. No way. Yeah. <laughs> she was driving and I was like, oh, by the way, I love you. But it was just the worst. I was sitting there like, I'm literally so stressed out. Like, I can't do anything about it. <laughs> Perfect example. Or people who get stressed on planes, even though they're more safe than driving a car, it's because you're not in control. Mm. And, and we are neurobiologically wired uh, to prefer a sense of control and and feel stress when we lose that sense of control. So a couple of quick studies. Um, there was one by Emily Werner, and she followed 698 kids from the day they were born till 30 years of age. And what she found over a 30-year period was that one of the key factors that led to the ones who were at risk staying resilient, um, uh, regardless of their traumatic experience, was this internal locus of control their ability to express mm. control. So it's this concept of taking back control resolves stress. And so there's another study uh, in the really prestigious Nature publication 2005 by Egner and Hirsch, which found that cognitive control, so expressing that control, actually shifted resources in the brain away from the stress regulation and from expressing that stress back towards uh, much more of the, the healthy executive processing and allowing people to regulate themselves. Um, which led to increases and enhances in performance um, 
because effectively what you're doing is you're taking back control from the stress. So that's the frame I want to leave before we get into brain tools is this idea that resilience is really about learning to take control. I really like it because, mate, you're just basically justifying Stoic philosophy. Marcus Aurelius <laughs> yeah, is sitting bit. there being like, my best-selling book, Meditations, is factual. It <laughs> 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 is legit and he is happy. They were ahead of their time. They were ahead of their time. Absolutely love it. Well, I think that is a really good part. Now that we've covered, obviously, all about resilience, and now we're going to look at it in the workplace, these brain tools. So stick around. Let's get jiggy. Well done. You've made it this far. So if you are loving this Brain Tools episode, share it with one person you actually think can benefit from this episode. Remember, sharing is caring and your brain makes our support happy. Uh, just, just go share it. Just go share the episode, please. And welcome to the brain tools section where you're going to get four practical brain tools to help you become more resilient in the workplace, better respond to stress and improve your overall resilience over time. But before we get into brain tools, it's always important to have a bit of context. We love, again, it's our opening line. We just love context. (laughs) And so Sam, I'm going to give you two points here before we get into uh, what are going to hopefully be some very useful brain tools in the workplace when it comes to resilience. I think the first one, and this possibly requires a fair bit of self-awareness, but you want to be really mindful if your job is just having a net negative on your well-being, right? There's no point yep. trying to grind through something if there's literally no joy, no satisfaction. And again, we always talk about pleasure and purpose and that being a really important factors in happiness. If there's none of that, I think you probably got to go, right? There's no point continuing to push through a ship that has already sunk. Um, that's my first one. Is that fair? I think this is a very valid point. <laughs> like if you're burning out at work because of the work, maybe evaluate what's going on. Absolutely. And that's where you, where you need to, you know, get your PFC involved, need to do an, a real assessment of it. But I think the the second part for all these tools that we're about to go through is it's simply all about probability, right? Which is how do you increase the chances that you, your colleagues, your company will be able to grind through and bounce back and actually go through the stress. And these tools are all about A, creating that environment, but B, actually helping individuals like yourself listening to this that can do so. And that's uh, those are my two points for context before we crack in. Mm, and really, really valuable points. And the last point I would add for context is if you are overloaded and overworked and over capacity, no matter how many resilience tools you use, that's <laughs> not going to change your workload and situation. So that's always a conversation that's worth having. And that one goes out to managers and leaders too. Uh, you can give your workers as many yoga sessions as you want, but if you're asking them to work 18 hours a day, they're still going to be pretty stressed. So, oh, yeah, the, the great old yoga. There. Let's do some Bikram yoga and that'll yeah. decrease my stress. <laughs> Just don't watch his uh, Netflix because you won't want to do Bikram after that. But speaking <laughs> of non-Bikram related topics, uh, leading into brain tool number one, which is write down what you can control. So I want to give you a tool that helps you bounce back faster, respond to stress and reduce your stress response when something does go wrong at work because it will go wrong at work. And this tool helps you feel in control again. All you have to do is when you have one of these experiences or periods at work that are really, really challenging and you're feeling overwhelmed or stressed and your amygdala and stress response and HBA is just hyperactive, sit down and write out by hand what you can still do and what you can control. And 
the reason for doing this is because in doing so, you're activating that internal locus of control, like we said, which mitigates the stress response. And because research shows that this sense of control is inversely related to the sense of stress we feel, by writing down what you can control and reminding yourself, you're actually taking back control in that situation. I love that, mate. I think that that is like a real sort of uh, ode to journaling in a way, right? Because mm, you know, all this yeah. stuff in your head and it can be really vague and large in your head, but when you put it down on paper, A, you're actually taking control, as you said, by doing a physical action, but then you start to see it in smaller writing. So I think that is a really important point. Can you explain then how do you go about using this? Yeah, I, that's a it's a really good question because you've, it's great listening to these tools, but like we said uh, in former episodes, you've actually got to apply them. So this tool is really, really simple, but it's when you are having those moments of overwhelm where you think the world's going against you, maybe you've lost a client or you've lost a sale or you've got too much work going on, you feel like you're never going to get done or, or there's a customer who's been terrible to you. Take out a pen, get a sticky note and write down the things that you can still do that you can control. So for example, you could say, okay, well, a client's been terrible to me, but I can get them this email and I can finish off that piece of work and send it over to them. And then I can go to the gym tonight. Or if you're in another situation, maybe you say, okay, um, I'm struggling with my manager right now. The things I can do is I can talk to HR. I can talk to my team. I can do this. And the more you start to use this tool, the more you'll experience that positive self-directed neuroplasticity because you'll be teaching your brain to adapt and respond to these stressful situations in a way that focuses on what you can do on that sense of control. And therefore, you're actually building in resilience into your behavioral response. Um, And we know this is validated by lots of the science because obviously we've got some of the work from George Banana and Grevesi who who looked at kids versus adversity in their internal locus of control and the the distress study I mentioned just earlier. I love that. So much because, as you said, I might, I'm actually going to rename you. You're no longer Sam. You are, mate, you're Sam Aristotle. That's literally what I'm going for Ooh. now. Like, <laughs> Seneca and Sam. <laughs> I love it. But I think this, it's such a simple and small thing you can do in the moment, particularly, right? Because uh, you're experiencing that visceral stress. Because everyone's spoken to a bad customer, like, a, I wouldn't call it bad, an angry customer before, and you feel terrible. Like, you feel like you own the issue and that you're the problem. And so, directing, as 100%. you said, onto, hey, what can I control in this situation? What can I do? And then move forward to that, I think is an awesome one of being more resilient in the workplace. Absolutely. And it's really focusing on what you can control and what you can do in that moment, which we know also you know, activates more of the prefrontal cortex and shifts that processing away from amygdala and the stress response. I love it. So, so good. And it beelines beautifully, if I must say, into brain tool number two, which is spin your social web. Ooh. Ooh, <laughs> Spidey. Yeah, weird names today. There's, there's more coming here, just weird names. But I think, um, Sam, with this one, I think when people, and please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but when people experience high stress, they have a tendency mm. to isolate themselves from work, colleagues, and friends. And that's why there's a correlation between burnout and high absenteeism or high sick leave. Do you think that's a fair fair point? Well, I absolutely think it is. And I think it's possible because of association and our uh, avoidance response to aversive stimuli. Mm-hmm. So we want to move away from the things that we associate causing us pain. And that might be co-workers at work. That's such a good point. And like that, that whole idea when you do this, right, is you isolate yourself, but then the stress negatively compounds and there's no way to get out. People get trapped in their own head. And essentially you become a fly in a web that you didn't know you actually created, but you're still trapped. 
And so the solution that we hopefully can give here is, as we said, to spin your social web. Well, you want to be like a spider. You want to be the owner of the web. And that way you can catch yourself even if you fall. And that's why a spider web is really strong when there's multiple connections at different points. And that is so, so important when it comes to social connectivity. And that's where I've got so far. I, I love that. That's it makes so much sense. And that thinking of it as a, as a web, a pr- like a supportive web is brilliant because it can kind of help you visualize how necessary all those connections are. There is interesting proof around this as well. And I've got two sort of studies for you. Jackson and Al in yeah. 2007 actually found that having contact with colleagues outside of the immediate work setting was vital in improving resilience. And I find that a really interesting <laughs> one. It's not just in the workplace, it's outside the workplace. So you obviously have that social yeah, okay. connectivity there. But then interestingly, in Australia, 2010, Journal of Community Psychology, Rural Australian Communities, where they basically found that those that rebound from extreme adversity into 12 specific attributes. And lo and behold, the number one one was called robustness. And the number one thing about robustness was your social network. How robust is your social network? And I sat there and I was like, all right, that's all the proof that I need. (laughs) (laughs) Close the case. Case dismiss. (laughs) Judge, we've seen enough. Um, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, especially when you think of it in, in reference to social connection and what we know about the neuroprotective properties of that, how it activates the serotonin systems uh, and various uh, oxytocin systems and et cetera in the body. So taking this into account, how do you use this concept of social web? How do you actually implement it? So Samuel, great question. I'm going to layer this slightly into three different components because I feel like you can use this social part in three different lenses, which is individuals, managers or leaders and companies. So I'll first start with individuals. I think the first question to ask yourself, if you are an individual at work, how many people are you friends with at work? How many people would you actually say I'm actually a mate with? And if none, Mm. as per your point, Sam, on actually taking control, schedule one lunch with a colleague you don't know. Now, I know that's a hard one to do, but then you'll find that you'll actually be creating a web there. If you're a manager, right? As per the point we said before, have your one-on-ones outside of the office. Go for a coffee. Spontaneous outings always lead generally to the greatest connections. And it's that change of environment that leads to a change in attitudes by both people, which means you're more likely to connect on a more intimate level. And you might actually find that a bunch of stuff pops up that you didn't realize otherwise. Um, I think that is also, and I would love your thoughts on this, is that it also solves information flow. Like one of the worst things for, for people and employees is like, hey, I don't actually know what I need to do. I'm not aware of stuff. And that can actually help massively. So individuals and managers to start with. Yeah. And I love that you use the distinction between having that meeting inside the workplace physically and changing the environment because it totally changes the context and then therefore the way you relate to each other. But yeah, and solves that information flow problem as well. 100%. And the last one from a company perspective is, again, I'm always mindful of organized fun and really, really structured fun. However, all I will say is ritualize a space for individuals to meet, right? And I think that could be, you know, Mm. if people do drinks on a Friday afternoon or whatever it might be, but as long as that part is sacred and it's actually, quote unquote, a part of work, I think that's going to be really important. So the idea here is to spin a web the stronger your web, the more connections. And on those three different levels, hopefully that means that as an individual, as an employee, and also as an employer, you're able to um, facilitate that social connection and cohesion. Mm, which will then lead to increased resilience down the line. So it's, it's really about building out your social connections at work, also outside of the workplace with those same people, because then they for, form this support web that helps you be more uh, resilient in certain situations. 100%. You've absolutely nailed it. And that is brain tool number two, which is spin your social web.
Mm, love that brand tool. I, I know I actually did a post a, a while back on LinkedIn talking about the same thing where one of the best things you can do to improve your mental health um, related was just to reach out to a whole bunch of friends. So, so true, man. So, so easy to do. Uh, leads into brand tool number three. And this is, as opposed to looking at it from a social web perspective, we're looking at it from more a skill perspective. So this tool is going to help you respond to stressful situations by learning a new thought pattern. We talked about behavior before with control, but this is about a thought pattern. And it helps you feel uh, a lot more optimistic and again, helps with that sense of control. When you have a tough time at work, when you're experiencing something that's stressful or traumatic, reframe the situation in your brain as something that will benefit you or help you grow or help you change. So for example, you could ask yourself, how is this going to help me grow? Why? Well, because we know that when you change the way you think about a potentially emotionally listening stimuli or an event, you actually change how your brain and therefore your body responds. So you're building resilience in by changing and flipping that script and that frame, which helps you change your brain in the moment. And then over time, the more you do this, you experience myelination, you wire this pathway into your brain. And suddenly next thing you know, you've been doing it for two, three years, your de facto response to a situation is, what can I learn from this? How can I grow from this? And suddenly you've become a much more resilient person. You've just motivated me. Are you Tony Robbins? <laughs> that is so uh, no, good but though. I, I'm with you. I, I do do uh, motivational speaking by the hour. If you want to hit me up. <laughs> no, but <laughs> we love a bit of Tony. He does bend uh, the science somewhat and some of the psychology every now and then. And this this really lines up with the work we know from from um, George Bonanno in the clinical f- psychologist at Columbia uh, University's Teachers College who studied all these students and tried to analyze what were the key elements of resilience. And it was that he found the way they perceived stressful events or stressful periods and the way they conceptualize those in their brain um, and express those were what defined their ability to be resilient. That is Awesome, mate. I love that so much. I think that, you know, we talk about, you know, cognitive reframing really important, but there's so much research that goes into, you know, rational optimists, so to speak, that are able to be more resilient because they're able to have that reframe in that moment, positively gear it, so to speak, to have that opportunity as opposed to the problem or the threat. So I really like that. My question, as always, we ask here, how do I use this? All right. Well, I'd love to give people a really simple way to implement this because I think the idea of cognitive reframing can be quite daunting. People are like, oh, I don't know how to apply that. So really simply, next time you're feeling the squeeze or every time you feel under a stressful period at work or an event that challenges you, it's somewhat traumatic and stressful, flip the script and just ask yourself this question. What can I learn from this? Bonus points if you write it down. But if every time you're asking, what can I learn from this? You are forcing yourself to look at that silver lining and flipping your perception of the event from stressful to growth. Um, and this is like from a scientific perspective, there is a ton, a metric ton of research out there on cognitive reappraisal and reframing, which is what we're talking about. Dozens of studies. Um, and we know that over time, they actually alter the, the neuronal pathways in your brain between the prefrontal cortex and the reward um, system and circuitry, um, and also reduce uh, you know the activation of your amygdala and HPA and et cetera. So that's brain tool number three, which is flip the script, learn to reframe stressful situations uh, to become more resilient by asking yourself, what can I learn from this and focusing on that? 
Mate, that's so, so, so strong. Because I just had the thought there on, on that ilk of like to help people do that, if you are a manager, if you are a leader, asking that question first as well, which is like mm-hmm. what can we learn from this or what can I learn from what we've done here and making that concession potentially could help make it easier for every single person within the organization to ask that same question as well. Um, but just a thought. That's a great frame actually and probably not a bad one for, for people who do have a team when you're going through a really stressful period. Put that out in your Slack or your, your team meetings. Like, What can we learn from this? You're helping people change their brains. I love it. And that beelines very nicely into the final brain tool, which is brain tool number four, break burnout. Ooh, okay. Well, you've, my ears are perked up. Got this cochlear <laughs> attention right here. Well, what I mean by that is because you have made such a great point about cognitive reappraisal and about making sure we're actually in our control. It is so, so, so difficult to do anything that requires conscious thought when we are in our own heads, right? When we're experiencing so much stress and it's normally because we've been burnt out. It's akin to sleep deprivation, right? As we spoke about on episode one of the inaugural, the first episode of the Brain Tools podcast, people, when they are sleep deprived, they actually don't know that they're sleep deprived. They've got no idea, but everyone outside looking in is like, hey, you need sleep ASAP. And I think the whole idea here, we've got to prevent burnout in the first place. Benjamin Franklin says, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And so what's really important is to make sure we're taking macro and micro breaks on a monthly, weekly, and daily basis. And Sam, I've got a little bit of proof to back this up. Well, we do like to validate what we're saying with some real credibility. So hit me with your proof. What do you got? So this, this study, I was just like, it confirmed, again, I'm always mindful of confirmation bias, but it was so interesting. They did a study, and this was in 2020, so it was last year, of 2,000 office workers and taught, basically mm-hmm. talked through that said they needed to take annual leave every 43 days and it was vital to stave off burnout. Every time that they looked at people that were outside this bracket that didn't take leave in that period of time, they would actually be more susceptible to burnout and obviously have those mental health issues as well. And I sort of sat there and be like, that makes so much sense, but we don't seem to value that leave and we don't seem to value the breaks. If someone goes for a break at work, hey, why are you doing that? Why are you going to break? Don't go on a break, work. And I think yeah, that's right. the mentality that becomes really important to think about from an individual, a manager, and a company. Yeah, absolutely. And we're like, managers aren't pushing their team members, hey, take it. You should be taking a couple of days off every month. It's like, yeah, go take a big break at the end of the year because that's when you've deserved it. That's a great reframe, Correct. by the way. Cognitive reframe. Reappraisal. Thanks, mate. I'll try my best. So the question then becomes, as always, how do we go about using it? And again, I'm just sort of going to break it into individuals, managers, and companies. Sam, on an individual perspective, and again, I'd love your thoughts on this, is I think first and foremost with from a leave perspective is to make sure that people schedule in their leave every six to eight weeks. It's something to look forward to. It's in the calendar. It's there and then. And I think that's probably a first part. And the second part of that is to break it even further is in the weekly setting, have a day of the week when you completely switch off. For me, it's Saturday morning. That's my sacred time where I'm normally by myself. I'm reading my book. I'm in nature. I go for a walk. But I think those two parts for an individual hopefully can help. Mm, I mean, it makes like a ton of sense. I think that just that one principle of scheduling it in to make it happen is super powerful. Yeah. And then on the final part, I was on the day-to-day basis, which is we talked about ultradian rhythm last week when it came to productivity and just being mindful that we work in 90 to 120 minute cycles. Leverage this, take that break. And in that break, if you do work for 90 minutes, that break, walk, go talk to someone, do something active. Don't just stare at your phone. Otherwise, that's what's going to contribute to burnout. And so if you put those breaks in, that can probably help from an individual level. Is there anything else you can think of, mate, that could help? 
those two are the, the biggest ones. I would also say schedule a break in the middle of your day where you don't work. Give your brain some either non-sleep, deep rest or some recovery, go for a walk, et cetera, because you're actually providing the same thing. But those are great protocols. I love it. And then the last two parts, and just in terms of if you are a manager or leader, you're leading people. I think it's really important incumbent, find out what the things that your employees want to do outside of their work and encourage them to schedule that time so they look forward to. So for an example, I remember when I had a boss back in the day, I really wanted to hike in the Grampians and he was really great in encouraging that. And we locked in my leave and I had something to look forward to. And it was pushed down by the manager in more of a nice way and a coaching way, which was really, really interesting and, and personally I enjoyed. But then that probably puts the onus in on the company. And you know, recently it's a lot in trend in vogue, four-day work weeks, unlimited leave, all this sort of stuff. As a company, I think you just want to think about how you go about doing that. The only note I want to make is unlimited leave sounds great, but all the research shows that people with unlimited leave take less leave than when they're actually given to it, which I think you might've seen before, Sam. Yeah, I, I have. And I was about to call you out on that one because I was like, have you seen this research? Crazy. You give people the option of more leave and they take less. 100%. And I think that well, the whole principle here anyway from a workplace perspective is to build resilience. It's really hard to be resilient when you're burnt out. So let's actually prevent that by taking those macro and micro breaks. And that is... Brain tool number four, break burnout. Well, oh, so good. So scheduling in breaks so you don't burn out as a re- resilience prevention mechanism. So being a lot more proactive about it. Really like that. Love it. Mate, four good brain tools we like to think. Shall we summarize? Yes. Let's go back to the top. Brain tool uh, number one is write down when you what you can control when you're feeling unregulated, stressed out by a situation, one of the best things you can do for your resilience is to write down what you can still control as this will help counteract that stress response and put you back in the driver's seat. Love it. That leads really nicely into brain tool number two, which is spin your social web. Social connectivity is so, so important at work because it creates a foundation and a safety net for you to actually be more resilient. So spin that social web, create the connections with people from a company, from a manager perspective, really encourage that social connectivity. And what you'll find is people will be more resilient because they've got people to lean on and they don't have to deal with their problems by themselves in isolation. That's brain tool number two, spin your social web. And brain tool number three, which is practice and master cognitive reframing. Uh, When you're having stressful periods, Reframe the situation by asking yourself, what can I learn from this? Because doing so will place your focus and your perception on the benefits of this situation and help mitigate that stress response and teach you to be resilient in the long run. So that's brain tool number three, practice asking yourself, what can I learn from this? Absolutely love it. And that beelines beautifully into final brain tool, which is brain tool number four, break burnout. In order to actually be able to cognitively reframe and take control of things, we need to make sure that we're not burnt out because it's impossible to do that if we are struggling. So what do you do? Schedule those breaks in. From a six to eight week basis, schedule your leave in and actually take it. From a day-to-day percent, have one day a week, which is all about you, no work. And finally, on a day-to-day basis, make sure you're taking those breaks in that 60, 90, 120-minute window to make sure that you can get all the way through. Because as Benjamin Franklin says quite nicely, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. That's brain tool number four, break burnout. That's uh, that's four hot brain tools for uh, anyone... (laughs) At work, and if you really like those, you know what a, another great brain tool is? Sharing those with your coworkers. 
Um, that also make you more resilient. I don't know how, but it's part of the social web thing somehow. <laughs> That's the best plug I've ever heard in my life. That's a plug right there. Shall, uh, shall we get into uh, what's your 80-20 for this week for resilience in the brain? My, uh, my 80-20, mate, is structure your life so resilience is an easier path. Build those connections with people, build the structures and pillars, and you'll find that resilience is much easier than it was otherwise. What about yourself, mate? Oh, that's amazing. What a good frame. Mine is resilience is a matter of perception. Learn to change your perception. Learn to focus on the things you can control and you build resilience into your mindset and the way you go about your day, which we know then alters your brain and how you respond. Mate, that is so, so good. And that is, wow, episode two of the Brains at Work series in uh, Holstered, and that was resilience. Productivity, resilience, we're on our way. We're on our way. We've got more coming down the pipe as well. So stay tuned for what we do next when it comes to brains at work. Sounds good. Well, that's bye for now. Bye from me. Well done. You've made it to the end of episode 25 of the Brain Tools podcast on resilience. Thank you so much for listening. We love your support. And if you do want to support the podcast, you're enjoying the content, you can do us a massive favor. Go click that share button down on whatever platform you're on and share it out with the people you care about. Share it out with your coworkers, your friends, put it in a WhatsApp group, a Slack group at work, an email, whatever it is. Share the good work around, share, share the good words about resilience in the brain. And finally, we cannot wait to see you back for the next week's episode, episode 26, part three of the Brains at Work series, where we'll be talking about psychological safety and building trust in the workplace. Can't wait to see you then.